who are coming down the aisles with them are in the back there, and they'll make sure you get one. If you have yours already, go to page 5, and this evening we'll be on pages 5, 6, and 7, God willing. Our big question tonight is continuing from this morning, and this is, how should you relate to fellow Christians when your consciences disagree with each other? How should you relate to other Christians? And this, this will happen in your home, this will happen in your small group of friends, this will happen in a large church. Any two people get together, this is going to happen. So this is where we turn from focusing on just you and your individual conscience to more broadly how you relate, relate to others. And this is where it gets much, much more complex. You might, may have thought this morning was complex. Well, when you involve other people relating to each other, it gets much more complex here. So let's dive right in. First bullet point on your handout, you see the words theological triage. And let's just start with that second word, triage. Do any of you know what the word triage means? I just learned that you're a, a doctor, so you probably know. Uh, so let's go with medical triage first. You can correct me if I'm wrong, doctor. Uh, but in my understanding, let's, if I were to break my finger or something relatively minor and go to the, the emergency room, it it might be kind of busy. I hear it's usually busy on weekends. And I might be waiting for 10, 15, 20 minutes, an hour, depending on what's going on. And after I'm waiting for an hour, someone else might bump me in line because they just got in a car accident and they need immediate attention. Now, we understand the fairness in that, right? That's triage, where you're sorting according to quality and urgency. Is that accurate in your view, sir? Passable? Okay, good. You're making me nervous, man. All right, back to the Bible. All right. Um, or uh, more solid footing here, parenting. Uh, we have three girls, ages six, two, three, and two, and sometimes all three of them are crying at once. In fact, I was just talking to my wife on the phone uh, about 30 minutes ago, and two of them are crying at once. I thought, man, my job's easier today than yours. Uh, but uh, she had to do triage there. Uh, which one needs my attention first? Uh, sorting according to the urgency of the need there. Now, did you know that this is true with what the Bible teaches, that everything the Bible teaches is true and important, but some things are more important than others. Some, some truths are more important than other truths, and we could call this theological triage. Some, all, all truth is important, some is more important. So to simplify things, we could think of this on three levels. I've I found this helpful to do this. First level issues, second level issues, third level issues. So first level issues are most central and essential to Christianity. So you can't deny this, one of these first level issues, and still in any sense, any meaningful sense, be a Christian. So there's one true God. There's one God in three persons. Jesus is fully God and fully man, and Jesus lived and died and rose again for sinners, and he died in the place of sinners, and Jesus is coming back. These are truths that all Christians affirm. Christians don't deny those truths. If you deny those truths, you call into question whether you're actually a Christian, because those are the core to being a Christian. Now, that doesn't mean you could join this church, because uh, there are more distinctives about a particular church than this, those main truths. That's just the baseline to be a Christian. That's what you affirm. Second level issues, 
Second level issues create reasonable boundaries between Christians, like different denominations and local churches. So, for example, uh, to join this church, I, I'm guessing you need to be baptized after you became a Christian. Is that how you work here? That's, okay, that's where I would think is best. Um, so, if you are convinced in your mind that's unnecessary, you wouldn't join this church. You might attend or join another church, but that's, a, I think, a reasonable boundary a reasonable boundary. Other issues might be your, your view of church government, meaning uh, who is leading the church, how does that work, or your view on the role of men and women in the church, in the home, uh, that might lead you to attend one church or not another one. Okay, so these are, these are second-level issues. I think they're really important for the health of a church, but you can disagree on these and still be Christians. Everyone tracking so far? Okay, so first level issues, second level issues, and now third level issues. These are disputable matters. Some call these matters of indifference or matters of conscience. You might hear the Greek term thrown out, uh, adiaphora. So matters of conscience. And these might involve how you interpret a particular passage of the Bible, like what's your view on the sons of God in Genesis 6? I'm guessing that to be an elder in this assembly, you don't have to hold a particular view of that passage. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay, so there's, there's latitude on certain interpretational issues. Uh, you should be able to be members of the same church and disagree on, on, on issues like this. Um, and many issues fit here that are not just interpretational, but applicational. So uh, let's give some examples here. How should Christians view the Sabbath, quotation marks around that, the Sabbath. Uh, is it okay to go to a public restaurant on Sunday? Is it okay to work in your yard, mow your grass on Sunday? Or to work for pay? Or to shop at the grocery store? Or to watch a football game? Or to play a football game? You getting nervous here? Uh, how do, you, how do you process that? Those are issues that I think you could disagree on and still be members of the same church. Here's a, another list. Um, listening, whether it's ever okay to listen to quote-unquote secular music. That's music without Christian lyrics. Is that ever okay? Uh, what does it mean to dress modestly? Uh, is it okay to be a capitalist as opposed to a socialist? Is, is one more Christian than the other? Uh, is, can you be a Christian and differ on those things? Uh, what about the issue of global warming? Playing video games. Uh, how wise is that? Uh, reading J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. I'm passing on these. I could talk about all of them. We might have a Q&A at the end, so you can come back to these if you want. Uh, following the schedule in the book, Growing Kids God's Ways. God's Way. Not, not ways. God's Way. Uh, homeopathic medicine versus antibiotics. Anyone getting riled up yet? Some of you are like, I know the right view on this. Okay. Uh, how about public school versus private school versus private Christian school versus homeschool? I don't know where your church is on this or the, what the culture is, uh, but I'm guessing that some of you are very, have very strong opinions about that. Uh, another issue, eating unhealthy fast food, like at McDonald's. Some people have very strong views about that. Now, this gets even more complicated when it's Christian fast food, Chick-fil-A. <laughs> uh, uh, 
What about a church with multiple services or multiple sites? You're just one service, right? Always okay. Um, Christian hip-hop. What do you do with that? Or body piercings, or smoking cigars, or drinking alcohol in moderation, or going into debt, or dating versus courtship, or when should married couples start trying to have children, and how many children should married couples have, or this one gets me, uh, perpetuating the Santa Claus myth with the result that parents don't get credit for presents that they selected, paid for, and wrapped. I'm not trying to tip the scales there, I'm just being, <laughs> saying how it is. Okay. All right, so those are third-level issues, and I could give so many more. That's just, so you got the feel for what I'm talking about, okay? The third-level issues is what this is about tonight. We're not talking about core doctrines. We're not talking about second-level issues. We're talking about third-level issues, issues that Christians will disagree on, and they should be able to disagree on them and get along in the same church. So it's easy for third-level matters to become deeply ingrained in your conscience. And wherever two or more people interact in some sort of relationship, whether they're siblings or fellow students or married or fellow church members, whenever two people are interacting, they're going to disagree on some third-level issue. No two people are going to agree on every third-level issue. This we're different. At least in this fallen world, that's not going to happen because we all have different perspectives. We have different backgrounds, different personalities, different preferences, different thought processes, different levels of understanding about God's word and God's world. We're all works in progress and we're all in flux and no two people are ever going to line up on everything. So you can guess what happens when not just two people, but a group of people join together as an assembly, as a church, what's going to happen? Well, you can expect disagreement. Just mark it down. You will have disagreement on these issues in this church. And the goal then is not always to try and eliminate those differences. The goal is to glorify God by loving each other in our differences. So understanding how the conscience works help us, helps us do that. So let's talk about, next bullet point on your handout, conscience controversies in the early church. And tonight, our text is from Romans 14. So if you can manage to have a handout open and your Bible open, uh, that'd be great. Go to Romans 14 in your Bible. That's our text. And I believe that Romans is the greatest letter ever written in the history of the world. And in this letter, Paul spends about 10% of the letter addressing the issue I'm talking about. This is important. And this passage is brilliant, it's profound, it really displays God's, God's great knowledge and insight and wisdom, and understanding and applying the principles in this passage of Scripture should just make you marvel at how wise and good God is. So the disputable matters in this chapter uh, are not exact parallels to what concern us today, but there's some significant overlap for some of them. Now, this morning, we talked about, this is on page four of your handout, we saw that table of the issues in Romans 14, food, holy days, and wine. Remember that? That's, that's from this chapter. Uh, and before we go further and, and just read through the text uh, bit by bit, uh, let's talk a little bit more about this divide that's going on 
among professing Christians in the church. So the table on your handout that says the strong and the weak has two columns, and one says strong conscience, and one says weak conscience. So let's try to make sense of this. A a typical church in, in Paul's day, especially in Rome, consisted of Jews, ethnically Jewish Christians, and Gentile Christians in the same assembly. And that created some issues because the ethnic Jews had some carryover issues in their conscience. Like, remember Peter in Acts 10, I can't eat that? Those sorts of things were embedded in them because they had been under the Mosaic law, and that was just part and parcel of what they thought was right. So they're carrying that over into their Christian life now. And then you have Gentile Christians who don't have those scruples at all in their conscience. And when they get together, there are some clashing. So the, the columns here roughly correspond probably to, to that, that background. So the strong conscience, the person is free. The weak, uh, they're strict. A, a strong one might say something like this, everything belongs to God so I can eat anything I want. That's mostly Gentile Christians. And then the strict would say, God wants us to keep some of our old food restrictions. That's mostly Jewish Christians. So uh, does that make sense? You, you're tracking with that so far? Okay. So that division is pretty significant. Uh, the Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome disagreed about eating meat, holy days, and drinking wine. Those are the three issues. So now you look at the, the next table. It says conflict between the strong and the weak. If, if the two sides never had any conflict, we wouldn't have Romans 14. So here's, here's what the conflict is about. Uh, some people with a strong conscience went beyond saying everything belongs to God so I can eat anything I want. Some said this, I have freedom in Christ to eat meat. And those who don't eat meat are just being unreasonable and are theologically in error. Hmm, unreasonable. And then those with a weak conscience would say, not only that God wants us to keep some of those old food restrictions, they'd go a step further and say, it's wrong to eat meat. And those who do eat meat are not being faithful to God. You see how the, it's, uh, the temperature's going up here? It's like, it's not just this is what I prefer, what I think is best. It's if you want to honor God and be a reasonable Christian, you need to be on this side. And that created schism in the church. So, this ethnic harmony in Christ was among Paul's highest concerns here. He did not want the church to split over issues related to ethnicity. And you can be sure that Satan loves to see splits like this. It's just like when you're cutting firewood and you, you look at the piece of wood, and if there's a little crack somewhere in the wood, that's where you want to bring the axe down because it's going to split easier there. And if you have a, a wedge in, a, in an assembly of division, you know that's, that's the place to attack. So what happened next is that there, eventually the early churches began to see not only these two overreactions, but two potential heresies concerning uh, meat and the other issues. So the next uh, table at the bottom of page five says seeds of heresy among the strong and weak. So look at the two outer columns. So some who are strong became overconfident and crossed the line into lawlessness and immorality. And they would say, I can eat meat and even go to feasts at idle temples. So Paul addresses them in 1 Corinthians 10. Now that's heresy. Satan's behind those idle temples. 
the lawlessness is not at all what the strong should be doing. That's, that's crossing the line. But you can, go, you can cross the heresy line on the other extreme as well. So some with, had a weak conscience and thought that everyone has to be strict like them to be saved. So they would say, you must follow the Old Testament dietary restrictions if you want to be a Christian. And Paul addresses these people, especially in, in his letter to the Galatians. And you might hear the, the term Judaizer. That applies to, to these folks here. So Paul saw this gap growing wider and wider. And you know, what's he going to do? I mean, he's an apostle. So if I were Paul at this time in history with apostolic authority, I would say something like this. All right, guys, if you... Not guys, people... Fellow brothers, if you have a weak conscience, uh, grow up, mature, just eat meat. It's good. It really is good. It tastes good. God gave it to us. Just eat meat. You're being silly. Grow up. Um, that's the non-pastoral side of me. That's what, at least what I'm thinking. Um, and Paul could have done that. I mean, he's the apostle. But instead, uh, he does something different. His solution is not to compel people to go against their conscience, even if it's misinformed. Rather, He's trying to cultivate, help them cultivate their conscience and live in unity in the midst of this issue. And to the, to the weak Christians, not the weak, to the strong Christians, he could have said something like this. If you have a strong conscience, just stop eating meat. It would make everything easier if you just stopped eating meat and we won't have this issue. Just, just give up your rights and stop eating meat. Did he say that either? No, he, he, he didn't say that either. Uh, so what does he do? Because remember the, the passage we read this morning from 1 Timothy 4, where there are false teachers who are simultaneously overscrupulous and yet their conscience is seared? Uh, there, there are those two opposite errors of, of people who would want to deny freedom to enjoy God's good gifts. And we don't want to ever say to the strong, this is God's good gift to you, but don't ever enjoy it so it makes getting along easier. That would be the easier thing to do for just solving. It's like when you have kids in your home and they don't like the meal that you might normally have for dinner, so we just have mac and cheese and no one complains. Uh, that, that, that stinks if you're the dad, you know? Uh, so <laughs> That's not in the notes. I just thought of that. Um, we don't do that, by the way. Okay. Uh, okay, so rather than, than lay down the law, Paul appealed to the law of love. So his concern was unity, and that should be ours. So one of my favorite commentators on Romans is named Doug Moo. I'm going to read a paragraph he wrote that's really good. He said, one of the most important points in Romans 14 is something that Paul doesn't say. He doesn't ever say that the weak in faith have to change their view. He makes clear that he doesn't agree with them, and by labeling them weak, he implies also that they have room to grow on these matters, but he doesn't tell them to change their mind. He doesn't berate them for being immature. He doesn't tell them to get with the program. But that's exactly what we tend to do when we're strong on a particular issue and think of or deal with weak people. Notice how different Paul's working. So his solution is much different, and the, the, the table on the top of page 6 on your handout is Paul's solution of love. 
So this table is going to make you go, whoa. Okay, focus on the middle three columns. The middle three columns. And notice that first column is the strong conscience. So here's, here's what Paul says is a good solution. If you have a strong conscience on an issue, don't look down on the weak, but welcome them. I eat meat, but it's okay if others don't. We're one in Christ. So you're showing love. You have a strong conscience on this issue, and you're fully persuaded in your own mind. Or if you have a weak conscience on a particular issue, look at column three there uh, in the middle. It's you would not judge the strong, you would welcome them. So I don't eat meat, but it's okay if others do. We're one in Christ. So you have a weak conscience, but fully persuaded in your own mind about that. I think the ideal place to be, the sweet spot, is having a strong conscience and being very flexible. So the middle column there, column two, is Paul. So you're free to be flexible in disputable matters, to edify fellow believers and advance the gospel. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. That sums up that view. So it's a strong conscience that's fully persuaded. It's beautiful. So with that complicated background, I think we're ready to, to look at the text more carefully now. Let's listen to how God instructs us to disagree with other Christians about disputable matters. So we're going to look at 12 principles about how to disagree with other Christians on disputable matters. And what we'll do is I'll read the principle and then read the text of Scripture that goes with it, make some comments, go to the next principle. All right, so principle one. Welcome those who disagree with you. So I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. The NIV translates that, without quarreling over disputable matters. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Okay, so remember Paul's addressing two basic groups, the the weak in faith, right here you see that in verse 1, and those who are strong. Again, the weak in faith, uh, it doesn't mean that their faith is weak. It means that they, their, their faith, their faith re- refers not to saving faith. That's not weak. It refers to their theological view on a particular issue. It's weak. Their faith is weak with reference to that issue. It's not, the issue is not who has the most faith. The issue is who thinks that his or her faith lets them do this or that. That's the issue. So, got to stress again, those with a strong conscience and a weak conscience can both glorify God uh, and both sin against God. So it doesn't mean you're inherently better or worse as a Christian if you're strong or weak. And now, as you think about these issues, you're probably targeting yourself as a strong Christian on issues in your mind right now. Just thinking of all these ways you're right and these people you know are weak. Um, let's talk to you. Um, In most issues, you are actually probably both weaker and stronger on issues compared to other people. So look at the the spectrum of conscience on on your handout there. So let's say you think it's okay, you're, you're a Corinthian back in Paul's time, and you think it's okay to eat meat sold in the meat market, but you don't think it's okay to eat meat that you know has been sacrificed to idols. So there's someone who can do can go a step further than you can. Yet there are people on the other side who think that it's okay to eat meat that's prepared correctly, but not to eat meat sold in the market. And some can't eat meat at all. So there's a spectrum here. And the 
this, this spectrum, I think, exists for just about any issue, and there's just about always someone to both your left and your right on any issue. Right? Someone goes a little stricter than you, and you think, that's too far. Or someone goes a little further left, and you think, ugh, that, you're too free. Because uh, otherwise you wouldn't believe what you believe. I mean, your convictions are what you think is right, so you're convinced that's the right view. So any deviation, you're going to think, yeah, that's not quite right. Uh, but my point here is just that there's a spectrum, people on both sides. Don't just target yourself as, I'm the stronger one, when there are people probably on each side of you. Okay, so resist the temptation to judge the freer person uh, to your left and look down on the stricter person to your right. It's actually uh, not unusual for a person to be stronger on some issues and weaker on others. It's normal. Uh, my friend J.D. Crowley said that his uh, person of his parents' generation told him this story from when they were attending Bob Jones University. So I don't know when this was. I don't want to date J.D., but... I'm guessing this is in the 50s or 40s, a while ago, um, that there were in the ladies' dorm room, there were roommates, and one in, could play dominoes with a clear conscience, but the others could not play cards with a clear conscience. And the other could play cards with a clear conscience, but couldn't play dominoes with a clear conscience. And JD observes it. It must have been a, a dull year in the dorm. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's interesting how you know, some person can seem very free on some issues and very conservative on others, and you can swap it with other people. Isn't it interesting how that works? You don't always have people pegged of, oh, yeah, he's, he's culturally conservative. It doesn't always line up how you think it lines up. I was just talking to someone today about someone that I thought was really culturally conservative, and I found out he attends some pretty mainstream rock concerts uh, with Christian words that are unusually loud and just didn't think that he would do that. Like, I'm, I have this uh, cognitive dissonance going on. Uh, that would happen with more people than you realize if you knew where they stood on a whole bunch of different issues. Okay? All right. So, principle two. Better move on before I dig myself in a hole there. Uh, those who have freedom of conscience must not look down on those who don't. Let's read verses three and four. Let not the one who eats despise or treat with contempt the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on, that is, be judgmental towards, the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Okay, so if you're strong in your conscience on a particular issue, your temptation is to look at someone who is not as strong as you are on that issue and to think something like this. Those people don't understand the freedom we have in Christ. They're not mature like us. They're legalistic. All they think about is rules. That is an attitude of superiority, and Paul condemns it. Now, before I go on to the next principle, which dovetails with this one, let me give a warning here. Be careful not to assume that just because someone else doesn't exercise particular freedoms, that their conscience is weak in those areas. This is what I mean. Um, you may have a background that is very culturally conservative or relatively strict on some issues. Um, for example, I 
have that background. I attended Bob Jones University and a school even more conservative than that that referred to going to Bob Jones University as going down to Egypt. Uh, <laughs> their words. Um, so many people in those kind of subcultures have a weak conscience on many third-level issues, but, 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 it's a mistake to assume that they all do. Some people in those cultures actually have very strong consciences on many issues, but they're exercising their liberty in order to edify those around them within that context. So they are contextualizing to serve other people. I have a lot of friends who do this who are still in those circles, and I respect them so much. They know they have more freedom than they exercise, and they're restricting it for the sake of serving other people. It, it is a beautiful thing. So they're just, my warning is just be careful about assuming that everyone in a particular subculture has a weaker conscience on certain issues. That's just probably not the case. Okay. Uh, principle three. Those whose conscience restrict them must not be judgmental towards those who have freedom. So those are the same verses I just read. Now, those who have a weaker conscience on particular issues are tempted to pass judgment on those who are more free. And this is how it might go. How can those people claim to be a Christian and do that? Don't they know they're hurting the testimony of Christ? Don't they know that they're supposed to give up things like that for the sake of the gospel? You ever thought something like that? So Paul gives two reasons that it's such a serious sin to think that way. You see the first one in verse 3, uh, where it says, For God has welcomed him. You see that right there in the text? God has welcomed him. Uh, do you have a right to reject someone whom God has welcomed? Think about that. God has welcomed him, and you're rejecting him? Are you holier than God? And God himself allows his people to have different opinions on third-level issues, but you want to force everyone to agree with you? Is that not arrogant? And a second reason not to do this is you're not the master of other believers. When you look down on someone with a weaker conscience, excuse me, yeah, when you look down on someone with a weaker conscience or when you judge someone with a stronger conscience, either way you go there, you're acting as though that person is your servant and you're their master. But the text here says that God is their master. You're not their master. They don't stand or fall to you. They stand before God. So in matters of opinion, just let God do his work. You need to welcome your brother or sister. That's your job. Welcome him. Let God do his job. And God is a much better master than you are. So Let's just qualify here that third-level issues are not necessarily unimportant. I'm not attempting to trivialize them right now. I'm just putting them in perspective. It's okay to talk about third-level issues. It's okay to preach about them. It's okay to tweet about them and blog about them and Facebook about them. And you know, that, That's okay with at least two conditions. If you have the right spirit and the right proportion. So by the right spirit, I mean you're not being judgmental or looking down on others. And by the right spirit, Proportion, I mean, you, you keep disputable matters in their place as third-level issues. Unfortunately, what can happen is people get so preoccupied with a third-level issue that that's all they want to talk about. And they stir up division 
with their friends and in a, in a church and try to get people to join their side on, on that particular issue, it's, it's really ugly and it's really unhealthy. And, and usually church splits are not over first and second level issues. They're over third level issues. For, and that's really sad. It's really sad. So a third level issue should not be the main reason that you join a church. You may prefer the music to sound a certain way. You may prefer the pastor to dress a certain way or most people to dress a certain way or for the kids program to be like this or whatever. And those are not unimportant things, most of them. But uh, sometimes uh, people so focus on third level issues in choosing a church or whether to stay in a church, they are out of whack, out of proportion and not recognizing the main thing is first-level doctrine and second-level issues and the preaching of the Word. That's his core. That's the meat and potatoes. Why are you focusing on the sprinkles that go on the ice cream? That's just, it's out of proportion, out of proportion. And why do we do this? I think part of it, of course, is sin. In others, we just enjoy being with people who are like us. It's easier. It's more comfortable. What happens, or what can happen in a church, is that a subculture can develop in which the majority of people agree on a group of third-level issues. And then what happens is someone comes to the assembly from outside, whether they're transferring to the area or they just become a Christian, and they come into this new subculture and say, whoa, 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 okay, so to be a, a faithful Christian in this context, you've got to be here, 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 and here on third-level issues. I mean, I've, and this works in every context. It's not just unique to people who are conservative. So I have friends who are in a, in a church setting on the West Coast where the pressure was to wear jeans with holes in them and drink alcohol a lot and put your kids in public school and listen to certain grunge music and on and on and on because we have the freedom to do those things. And they felt oppressed, like, if I didn't do those things, if I just happened to be over here on those issues, I was on the outside. It can go both ways. Uh, and that's really, really unhealthy. Uh, it can, what it can do is, if, you, if you're not in the majority on those group of issues, you feel like you're an outsider, you're marginalized. And it might even pressure you to change your views for the wrong reasons. Okay, say a lot more there. Uh, principle four. Each believer must be fully convinced of their, their position in their own conscience. Look at verse five. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. So should Christians celebrate Jewish holy days? Well, this issue illustrates the principle that on disputable matters, you should obey your conscience. And it doesn't mean your conscience is always right. You've got to calibrate it. Remember this morning? Calibrate your conscience. But it does mean you can't be a healthy Christian and constantly be sinning against your conscience. You, go to, you, you must be fully convinced in your own mind that you are doing the right thing on whatever the issue is. And you see those triangles on your handout again? Those are similar to what we looked at this morning. This is, again, the first one has the two consciences. Some Christian, Christian one, Christian two are overlapping there. That means that Christian 2 has more things in his conscience than Christian 1 does, more prohibitions, more things you know, uh, than Christian 1 does there. But no one's conscience fully matches God's will. See the third triangle? So the human conscience and God's standard. God's will doesn't perfectly overlap with either of those Christians. So our goal is to weed out the things that shouldn't be there, put in the things that should. Uh, that, that's a, our lifelong pursuit. And for our purposes here in Romans 14, you must respect the consciences of others 
and not make fun of their rules or their freedoms when they differ from you on third-level issues. Now, if you have an opportunity, you might be able to slowly help them train their conscience to be more in line with God's standards. So a lot of the teaching ministry in the church is doing that very thing. But you must never compel someone to sin against their conscience. So if we could understand God's will completely, this, uh, we'd be in that top triangle. But we're not there. This is going to take your entire life. But don't despair. We have the Holy Spirit and we have the Word of God to help us. Oh, one example of this is just think of Paul when he became a Christian. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And just imagine the rules that were in his conscience and, and what needed to be weeded out. So rules like don't murder, yeah, that stays. But what about this? Uh, persecute Christians. <laughs> that needed to go. That was in his conscience as something to do. So there, there's just this weeded uh, garden full of weeds that he needed to weed out the weeds. And that's, that's what we need to do our whole lives. All right, principle five. Assume that others are, partake, are partaking or refraining for the glory of God. Let's read verses six to nine. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and the living. So, do you see in this passage how kind Paul is to both sides? So gentle, so loving to both sides. He's not berating the weak and praising the strong. He's being gentle and loving and open. He assumes that both sides are exercising their freedoms or restrictions for the glory of God. Wouldn't it be amazing to be part of a church where that was a culture? Where there wasn't this judgmentalism, this looking down on other people who differ from you on third-level issues. But the culture was giving others the benefit of the doubt, assuming that they're partaking or refraining for the glory of God, not putting the worst spin on everything. So Paul says it, that both the weak and the strong can please the Lord. He says right there, they both honor the Lord, even when they have different views on their matters. And they're both doing what they're doing for the glory of God. They're not doing it because they care what others will think or say, or they want to fit in by being strict like others in their church, or because they want to fit in by exercising freedoms like others in their church, or they want to break free from the strict background they had growing up and start doing all the stuff they were never allowed to do. None of that. Those are, those are very wrong motivations. So while we should believe the best about other people and their motives, we shouldn't assume that our own motives are okay. So the, the, the rule that... Uh, one of my pastors taught me is be very strict with yourself and generous with others. It's a good rule of thumb. Be strict with yourself, generous with others. Number six, principle six. Don't judge each other in these matters because we will all someday stand before the judgment seat of God. Let's read verses 10 to 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. If you thought more about yourself, your own situation before the judgment throne of God, 
do you think you'd be less likely to pass judgment on other people? <laughs> Just think about you and the Lord, and then think about other people. Yeah, it puts things in perspective, doesn't it? They're not going to stand before you. They'll stand before the Lord. That's between them and the Lord. You've got enough issues. You've got enough issues yourself. Uh, you don't need to spend your short life meddling in the lives of others. So in these matters where Christians disagree, just mind your own conscience and let God judge others. Principle seven, your freedom to eat meat is correct, but don't let your freedom destroy the faith of a weak brother. Verses 13 to 15. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat... Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. All right, so when Christians who are free on a particular issue interact with Christians who are not free on that issue, who has more options of how to behave? If you have a weaker conscience on a particular issue, you have one option. Your conscience won't let you do it. If you're stronger, you have twice as many options. You could do it, or you could not do it. Did you follow that logic? Okay. So, in this case, the bulk of responsibility is on Christians with a stronger conscience. So, chapter 15, verse 1, God calls these people to bear with the weaknesses of the weak. Christians with a stronger conscience on an issue must not allow their freedom to embolden one with a weaker conscience to sin. Now, I need to qualify what that means because a lot of people use this principle invalidly. So this is, this is not just using your uh, freedom in a way that someone else gets irritated, that it annoys them, that it offends them. That's not the issue. That's not what the passage says. This, this is not a, if a brother or sister doesn't like your freedoms. If, if someone doesn't like your freedoms, it's kind of a crass way to put it, uh, but that's, that's their problem. But if, if your practice of freedom on a particular issue leads that other person to sin against their conscience in that area, that's your problem. You see the difference? So here, here's an example. Uh, using the, the King James Version for some people is a really big deal. And if you use any other English translation, you're, you're wrong. So, I, I'm on social media occasionally, and I write things that are published, and do I need to quote the King James every time I tweet a Bible verse or reference something in an article, lest I offend my brothers who prefer the King James Version? Well, if you live that way, you won't be able to do anything, because just about anything you do is going to offend someone. Seriously. Uh, the issue is, by using that other translation, a modern translation, am I leading that other brother to sin? No. As best I can tell, I'm not. Um, now, if in his conscience, using another translation was sinful, and I said, you know, come here, brother. This is an ESV. Just read that verse. Read that. That's, that's, just, that's petty. That's stupid. That's immature. 
Uh, but that's, that's more in line with what Paul's talking about, and that's just a silly example, but you could raise the stakes with, with other issues where you go out of your way to encourage another person to go against their conscience, knowing they're going against their conscience. That's sinful. What you could do is destroy their faith. That is a very, very weighty thing. Very weighty indeed. So how exactly does this work? What might it look for you to destroy the faith of someone else? I wish, sometimes I wish the Bible was more explicit in certain places, and this is one of them, where, oh, I wish I knew more precisely what Paul means. Uh, my favorite commentator on Romans, Doug Moo, suggests two possibilities. One is that our engaging in an activity that another believer thinks to be wrong may encourage that other believer to do it as well. So they'd be sinning because they're not acting from faith. Or, two, an ostentatious flaunting of liberty on a particular matter may so deeply offend someone that they may turn from the faith altogether. I think the key element here is that it's not just that you do something that they disagree with so they're miffed. It's you do it in a way that encourages them to to commit what they think is a sin. And that itself is a sin. And that could be a road to destruction for them. We can come, I'm going to end with Q&A in a little bit here, and if you want to come back on that, a lot more we can say there. Principle eight, disagreements about eating and drinking are not important in the kingdom of God. Building each other up in righteousness, peace, and joy is the important thing. Let's read verses 16 to 21. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Okay, so here, the issue of food comes up again. Can there be anything in the Bible that's more clear that we have freedom about the food we eat? Uh, This passage says, everything indeed is clean. You see that right there? It's right there in the text. Everything indeed is clean. In Mark 7, Jesus declares all foods clean. Remember Acts 10, Lord's vision to Peter, rise, kill, and eat. Get your bacon. Remember that? And 1 Corinthians 8.8, 8, uh, Paul says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. Okay? So, and in case you still didn't get it, we have verse 17 as well. Uh, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. You got it? There's freedom about what you eat. It's right there in the text. So, if you have such freedom and you have a fellow believer who does not, why not voluntarily abstain? Why not voluntarily not eat that meat if your freedom will harm the faith of a wavering Christian in certain contexts? Why not give up that right? That's exactly what Jesus did. Why not give up that right? You have that option. So the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. The kingdom of God is not a matter of schooling choices or fair trade coffee or musical styles or fill in the blank 
That's not what the kingdom of God is about. Once again, I'm not saying third-level matters are unimportant. I'm not going there. I'm saying we have strong opinions, all of us do, about third-level issues, but they're not what the kingdom of God is about. So schismatically dividing over issues like that does not make for what Paul says is peace and mutual upbuilding. Principle nine. If you have freedom, don't flaunt it. If you're strict, don't expect others to be strict like you. Look at verse 22, first part. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. So don't flaunt your freedoms in a way that may cause others to sin. Be very careful to nurture the faith of other Christians in your sphere of influence. And those of you with a weaker conscience on particular issues, it's not your job to be the police and to, to remind people every time they disagree with you on a particular third-level issue when you see them acting a certain way. That's not your job. Uh, and if kids are talking to parents and nudging each other, it's different if you're the parent. That's a different relationship. Okay, Maybe that's, we should follow up on that. Uh, but you have pastors to follow up on that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, <laughs> okay. I better say something there. Okay, so if you're a child and you're thinking, oh man, my parents are way too strict. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Uh, Ephesians 6.1. I, I quote this multiple times a day in our house. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And then there's something else about not frustrating your kids, but let's focus on the first part. <laughs> obey your parents in the Lord. That is God's command to you, God's will for you. As long as what they're commanding is not breaking God's rules, God's commands, that's your job. So when you're on your own, you can make more of these decisions. But right now, that's God's command for you. Okay, that was free. All right, so uh, what can happen on these disputable matters is you might cross the line into legalism in a, if you define it a certain way. Here's how Sam Storms defines legalism. Legalism is the tendency to regard as divine law things that God has neither required nor forbidden in Scripture and the corresponding inclination to look with suspicion on others for their failure or refusal to conform. So, are you requiring of other believers it's things that God himself does not require of believers? That's pretty serious. Principle 10, we'll go fast for these last three. A person who lives according to their conscience is blessed. Second half of 22, starts off, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But what, verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, but whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Remember, that's one of the great principles of conscience. Obey your conscience. Obey your conscience. Principle 11 here, we must follow the example of Christ who put others first. This is chapter 15, verses 1 to 6. Chapter breaks, by the way, are often artificial. They're not original. They came in the, was it 1500s or something. Uh, that's verses, I think 1300s. They're, they're relatively recent. They're not inspired. They annoy me, actually. When I have the option, I strip them out and, and strip out verse references. So chapter 15 is continuing chapter 14. It's all one, one section. So, uh, 15, 1 to 6. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Notice the reasoning here. See the word for at the beginning of verse 3? That's important. We'll come back to that. For 
Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. And may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this principle does not mean that the strong have to agree with the position of the weak. It doesn't even mean that the strong can never make use of their freedoms again. But neither does it mean that the strong just put up with or tolerate the weak, like a person who, who tolerates someone he doesn't like. For a Christian, to bear with the weaknesses of the weak means you gladly help the weak by refraining from doing anything that would spiritually harm them, that would hurt their faith. And then verse 3 emphasizes the example of Christ. We can't even begin to understand, to imagine the incredible freedom that Jesus voluntarily left when he came to earth. To be God is to be completely free. Yet Christ did not please himself. He gave up his rights for you. He became a servant so that he could save you from the wrath of God. So compared to what Christ did, asking you to give up some of your freedoms for the sake of your brothers for whom Christ died is not asking very much. Final principle, number 12. We bring glory to God when we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And this summarizes the whole section. It's similar to chapter 14, verse 1, but it adds here a comparison and a purpose. The comparison you see is as Christ has welcomed you. See that in verse 7? And the purpose at the end, for the glory of God. It matters how you treat those who disagree with you on disputable matters. And when you welcome them as Christ has welcomed you, that glorifies God. So those are 12 principles from this passage. I think that's God's brilliant solution for what to do when Christians disagree about disputable matters. Way easier said than done. So here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to close by praying and asking God to help us do this. And then... Paul, correct me if I misunderstand here, then dismiss people to get their children, and if you'd like to stay for Q&A, we'll, we'll, we can go as late as 7.30. And so if people go out to get their children, or if you just need to go, that's fine. And if you stay for Q&A, uh, if it gets empty and you want to kind of crunch in, that's fine, or we'll just we'll go from there. Is that accurate? Okay. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed to get your children, or leave if you'd like. Father, we are, are finite and fallen people, and for a complex of reasons that you know far better than we do, we, we disagree with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ on all sorts of disputable matters. So we ask, would you please give us grace to welcome those 
who disagree with us on various disputable matters to welcome them. We need grace for that. Would you please give us grace not to look down on those who are stricter than we are? Would you please give us grace not to be judgmental towards those who exercise more freedom than we do? Would you please give us grace to be fully convinced of our own positions in our own consciences? Would you please give us grace to do everything for your glory and assume that others are partaking or refraining for your glory? Would you please give us grace to keep disputable matters in perspective, knowing that we will all someday stand before your judgment seat? Would you please give us grace not to let our freedom destroy the faith of a professing Christian who is weaker on a particular disputable matter? Would you please give us grace to build each other up in righteousness and peace and joy? And would you please give us grace not to flaunt our freedom or expect others to be as strict as we are? And would you please give us grace to live according to our conscience and experience your blessing? We want that. And would you please give us grace to follow the example of Christ who put others first? And would you please give us grace to bring you glory by welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us? Lord, we are weak and selfish, and we need so much endurance and encouragement to live with our brothers and sisters in this way of peace. And you are the God of endurance and encouragement. So please grant us to live in harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together we may with one voice glorify you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You're dismissed uh, if you'd like to get children or if you just need to go. And 710, we have 20 minutes for Q&A, and Paul... And I'm not sure if anyone else, and Rich maybe, are going to have roving microphones to do Q&A. So if you can get their attention with an uplifted hand, we'll uh, we have 20 minutes for Q&A. Are these? Okay. I'll go ahead and come down for this. I'm ready. All right. Okay, a, a two-part question. In Acts 15.2, when it, it says, let each of us please his neighbor. In Romans 15.2. Oh, Romans 15.2, yeah. that's correct. Romans 15.2. Any scriptural indication there that neighbor reaches outside the body of Christ? And then, wait, my second part would be, yeah. how does this differ from the world's philosophy right. of kind of live and let live man, whatever you do, you know, kind of like, the world's really good at adopting this message. Like, I don't want to, you can choose, you can believe whatever you want to believe, man. I mean, live and let live. More power to you. Okay. Um, I skipped this in my notes. So let me talk about verse two. Uh, let each of us please his neighbor. Uh, Paul is not saying become a people pleaser who cares more about what others think than what God thinks. He's not saying live and let live, man. He's not saying that either. Uh, so the choice isn't between pleasing people and pleasing God. The choice here is between pleasing others and pleasing yourself. So Christian freedom is not always, excuse me, Christian freedom is not this. I always do what I want 
That's not Christian freedom. Nor is it, I always do whatever the other person wants. That's not Christian freedom. Christian freedom is, I do what, bring God, what, what brings God glory. That's Christian freedom. I do what brings God glory. I do what brings others under the sound of the gospel. I, I do what leads to peace in the church. Is that getting at what you're asking? Okay. Um, in the context of Romans 14, I, I don't think so. Um, I'm going to sound tentative because I, I haven't reflected deeply on that. Have you, John? That's what I just said. Yeah. Is there a problem? Oh, John's talking without a mic. Sorry. He's saying what I said is I think in the context of Romans 14 and 15, it's all about relating relations between professing Christians. I want to say professing Christians because I think if you destroy the faith of a, of a person, that, that means they're not actually Christians. So it's professing Christians dealing with each other. Okay. okay. All right. Uh, the, the doctor, he's going to go after my triage statement. <laughs> no, my, my question has to do with uh, reform theology. Um, there are various points of Calvinism that uh, people will argue right. ad infinitum about, but uh, is that purely when we're dealing with what I would call significant but not critical oh, doctrine? A good question. Is that yeah. an area that there may be legitimate disputing, or mm -hmm. is this an area that okay. we should uh, defer to the brother? Good question. Here's my take. And if one of the pastors wants to follow up with the mic afterwards to clean up the mess, you just wait in line here. Okay. Um, my take on, is that some aspects of, of a Reformed view of the doctrine of salvation would be second-level issues. For example, I'm a member of Bethlehem Baptist Church, where we are unapologetically proclaiming that God is absolutely sovereign over everything, that God saves sinners. Those three words sum up, sum it all up. God saves sinners. I believe that's the core of my being. I would be so unhappy in a church where they denigrated that. I wouldn't fit. But there are some Christians who nuance that in a way that is not heretical, but I think is very unbiblical. So I put that as a second-level issue, that, that it'd be most healthy for a church to agree on that issue. There are some nuances of the Calvinist, or the, 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 more, the view that emphasizes God's sovereignty. That position, there are some nuances to it where there's room for disagreement on, on finer issues. For example, there's, there's a, a debate about for whom did Christ die? All right, specifically, did he die only for... My, my question is more about specifically the limited atonement. That's where I'm going, yeah. yeah. So did Christ die specifically for his people, his bride, or did he die more generally for all people, all right, or is it some combination? I actually, February 1st, I have a book coming out on this. I edited three views on that issue. Um, so that's my fuller answer, but my shorter answer here is I think that's a third-level issue, that that should not ever cause people to have to leave a church over that, and practically, even if you hold to that God, that, that Jesus died specifically for his bride, how that fleshes itself out practically makes no difference from another person who believes in God's sovereignty really strongly, but nuances a little differently. You're still all for missions. You still emphasize God's sovereignty. I see the only major difference I can see is that I have a better devotional life. That's a joke if you understand what's going on. Uh, 
my view, not I. But anyway, do you need to clean up on that, Mr. Pastor? Okay. Okay. All right, we have one back here. This morning you had said that the conscience is an on-off switch, not a dimmer, yeah. and it's all about right and wrong. Right. So what is the difference between our conscience convicting us of sin, or is it the Holy Spirit? Yeah, yeah. good question. Um, if, if it's actually not a sin and you feel conviction, that's definitely not the Spirit. That's your conscience. Can we agree on that? So if something is not a sin and you feel like it's a sin, that's not the Holy Spirit telling you it's a sin, that's your conscience. But if it's something that's good to do, I actually don't know for sure how to distinguish between whether it's solely your conscience or it's the Holy Spirit or both. I tend to think, well, the Holy Spirit uses your conscience, so there's, it's a uh, confluence. It's a, they're working together. The Holy Spirit's using your conscience to lead you to do right and not to do wrong, if, it, if what it is is, in fact, genuinely right or genuinely wrong. Any elders want to correct me or add to that? Okay. Is that answering what you're... Okay. Good question. That was a really good question. Someone asked me that this morning, too. There's one in the back. One over here. Good. We can, I'll do this one first. Good evening. Uh, triage is easy when you're just the doc and you're just receiving these pre-labeled bodies that you're going to operate on. Yeah, it's easy, right? Uh, <laughs> yep, okay. It's not necessarily easy, but it's simple. Uh, and it's um, simple. Absolutely, okay. All right. All right. Um, so we have this problem. Sometimes we have third-level issues which really feel like secondary issues, and maybe they are. So if we can't deal with the question, how do we tell what is one, two, or three, how do we stand for level three issues that are really important? How do we stand for those as important while admitting that they're oh, level three what issues? What a good question. A friend of mine... Uh, dropped out of a PhD program, but when he was in it, he had written two chapters of a dissertation on that issue. He was trying to, to go after that one issue, and I wish he would have stayed in the program because I wanted to read it. Uh, so the, the question is, basically, how do you know whether an issue belongs in, in the second level category or the third level category? That's where a lot of the debate is, because people, sometimes with a weaker conscience on an issue, put it in the second level category. And then further, okay, if you agree, okay, this is a third level issue, how do we talk about it? So I'm guessing here, I don't know how your pastors preach here on this issue, but if it's like schooling issues and your pastors are convinced that the public schools in this area are very anti-God, that they're, I don't know, I'm, I'm just guessing, I'm giving a hypothetical example, that it would be destructive to put your kids in that, in that setting. They might say something like, you have freedom to do this, but we're choosing for our kids not to do that because of reasons X, Y, Z, and we think that's the best, best way to go, but we're not going to judge you if you go this way. So it's, you, can, you can, like I did with tattoos this morning, I said, I think this way is better. This way is wiser. This is the way I'm going. But I'm, I'm going to welcome you if you go a different way. So it's, you, can, you can take a position and yet welcome someone who disagrees simultaneously. Come back at me if that's, is that okay? Add anything? Okay. Rich? I'm struggling with the idea of the scripture that says avoid all parents of evil in the, in the sense of the whole conscience thing and trying to flesh out yeah, um, so that's know, a, a first taking Thessalonians a stand five. or not taking a stand and being gracious. And um, I'm so used to using paperless. Like, <laughs> I have to flip to it. This is weird. Uh, <laughs> I haven't done this for a while. Okay, so First Thessalonians 
5, the closing paragraph, a bunch of commands, and at the end it says, don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test everything, hold, what is, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. I think in context that is all combined, and the abstain from every form of evil is with reference to bad prophecies. That's my particular view. You guys might have different views, but I think that particular line people abstract as a principle and apply it to this issue in a way that the text doesn't mean. Uh, do you guys handle that differently? Okay. All right. Oh, this is easier than I thought it'd be. Okay, we have one up here. Am I being too simplistic by using these litmus test questions? In Here's a mic for if you want it. In looking at yeah. uh, whether it's a um, right or wrong issue, such as does this draw us closer and others closer to God, or does it draw us or them away from him? Um, is it consistent with what Paul said when he said, follow me as I follow Christ? Does this honor or dishonor our Lord? And how does this affect my testimony? Those are good questions. In the under principle five, I skipped over a bunch of other stuff, and here's part of what I might have said uh, otherwise. So there's a book that one of my professors wrote at Trinity. You may know him, John Feinberg. Do you have him? No, but you probably know him. So John Feinberg and his brother Paul wrote a book called Ethics for a Brave New World. And in that book, they give eight tests, eight questions that Christians must face when deciding whether or not to indulge in a given activity. And they're similar to yours. So listen to these. Am I fully persuaded that it's right? If you're not, don't do it. Can I do it as unto the Lord? If you can't do it as unto the Lord, don't do it. Can I do it without being a stumbling block to my brother or sister in Christ? In the sense that I'm, I'm bringing them into spiritual harm, not that I'm offending them or irritating them. Four, does it bring peace? If it causes strife and disunity, don't do it. Five, does it edify my brother? If it's an unedifying activity, don't do it. Six, is it profitable? Seven, does it enslave me? And eight is a summary question, does it bring glory to God? Those are all questions taken from particular scripture passages. Good diagnostic questions to ask when trying to discern, is this something I should do? Good. Yep. Uh, so another question, no Christians can run for office. You mean like for political office? Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> he says none of those fit those criteria. That's pretty good. Uh, you're running faster than I am there. Okay. <laughs> that was good. Uh, Elaine up front has one. What counsel might you give when the two Christians that are disagreeing on a third level issue are husband and wife? This is theoretical. Totally. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the counter print biblical principles at play are submission yeah. within the home yeah. and yet weaker and stronger issue within the couple. Well, this is where it falls on the husband to do what the Bible says, and that's to love and lead your, your wife. Love and lead. Love and lead. Those are the two commands. Love and lead your wife as Christ of the church. So I'll give you some examples of how it plays out with Jenny and me. Um, I think I have freedom to drink alcohol. She's not, she thinks that we have the freedom, but she's just, there's something in her conscience that just won't let her do it. So she doesn't. So what do I do? I don't need alcohol. 
I'm not going to drink unless she's with me and um, we can do it together as unto the Lord. And I don't need to do it. So I'll gladly give that up. Who cares? It's just drink. Who cares? The kingdom of God's not about that. Or is this being recorded? Can you... Uh, <laughs> I just thought of an example. Can you, can you... Let's just take this out of the final recording. Um, the, the loving thing to do for the husband is not just give in to. It's willingly give up rights in, in a way that loves your wife. Now, my dad always tells this joke. It's a bad joke. Uh, he says, when I married your wife, when I married your mother, I told her that on all the little arguments, she'd win. and all the big ones, I'd win. And we've never had a, a big one since. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's not what I'm talking about. Uh, I, uh, so sometimes, uh, there are these other, other times where I'm convinced that this would be the better thing for our family. And she's not agreed. But I feel really strongly about it. I can't think of an example, but I'm sure I could give me more time, I could come up with one. And sometimes I just say, uh, I think we should do this. And she says, okay, I trust you. And it's beautiful. But what's happening is there's not this pitting of wills where it's yucky. It's a, we've got this relationship where I love her, she loves me, she trusts me, I want to do what's best for her. And it's just kind of a dance of how can we best love each other and follow each other and lead each It's. I know it sounds kind of nebulous. Is that getting? Is there a specific you wanted to bring up, or no? Okay. Um, some of you have been at this. I've only been married ten years. Do, do any of you have like Dan or anyone have something that would be more helpful than what I just said, or add to it? Ah, you? Okay. Is there something underlying your question that? Uh, okay. All right. This wasn't sure if I was getting at what you're getting at. Rich, is there someone back there? No. I think we have time for one, maybe two more. Depends how long. Okay, over here. Oh, uh, Rich, we'll end with this fellow in the back. It's uh, third to last. So right up here first. Until your book is published next year, are there any other resources that you would recommend on this issue? Uh, yeah. Um, you could, maybe we could connect by email or something. When I taught a class on the conscience at Central, it was a PhD class, I assigned 5,000 pages of reading. So there's, there's a lot related to it. Um, as far as like really accessible, summarizes it all succinctly, uh, two popular level works I think would serve folks. One is called The Vanishing Conscience by John MacArthur, and I think it's chapters two and three and seven, or it's just a few of the chapters of the book are right on, and they're good. And the other is a book by Christopher Ashe, which has one title in the UK and one in the US, and I forget the difference, but it's something, it has the word joy and conscience in the title, or subtitle, Christopher Ash. And those two are the two best pop level I can think of. All right, and our final question. Yes, sir. Yeah, you, um, you talk about the, the weaker and the stronger. Yes, sir. In the context of the stronger has more options, he can, he right. can either do or not do, right. and yet, the weaker doesn't always see himself as the weaker, does he? Right. He's right. not. He's not walking around. Gee whiz, I'm weak, so you have to capitulate to me. And at what point does the weaker become stronger, and and how does the stronger help him become stronger? Well, again, it's with reference to a particular issue, right? You don't want to qualify that. So you don't want to think, oh, that that person's a weaker and that person's a stronger. It's always on a particular issue. Right. Right. So. Um, so your question specifically, how do you know when a weaker becomes stronger? Well, no, how do you, 
How do you help if, them? If, if it's one issue in particular, yeah. that, that is a, a recurring issue. Yeah. And it's an issue that is just ad nauseum an issue. Yeah. At what point does the stronger throw his hands up in the air and say, hey, you know, I, I can't, I'm not going to capitulate. I'm okay. not going to, you know what I mean? It, yeah. There's at, at what point does the weaker have to give in, or does the weaker ever have to well, give in? Well, it depends. By give in, does it mean stop irritating them, or does it mean uh, if you're not leading them into sin by what you're doing, there's no capitulation there. Like, remember the example of um, using particular Bible versions? Or I could use another example of, of musical styles. I have friends who are so convinced in their mind that only a particular genre of music honors the Lord, and other particular genres cannot ever honor the Lord at all times and in all cultures. So by my enjoying another genre, I'm not leading them into sin in a way that would destroy their faith. I'm just bothering them and it irritates them. So I don't need to withdraw my freedom ever because someone else disagrees. But if they come over to my house for dinner, I'm not going to put on the music in the background that bothers them. I'm not going to invite them to you know, go to some concert to listen to something that bothers them. I'm not going to give them a Christmas present of you know, a CD of the people they think are evil. So it, is that what you're getting at? Okay. I think we're done, Paul. Thank you, Andy, yeah. for being here. And uh, thank you all for coming this evening. And so encouraging, so challenging, so helpful on lots of different levels. No doubt a ton for you to keep thinking about, for you to talk to your mates, friends, fellow church members about, and pray that God will grow us as a church through this teaching.